Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sunday service. My name is Naya Swami Diksha. This is Naya Swami Gyandev, and we're happy to share today. I'd like to especially welcome those who are here for the first time. I see some old friends visiting, uh, those who are taking programs at the Expanding Light, Personal Retreat, How to Meditate, and the Restorative Yoga, and those who are watching us online. I'd like to start by reading from Rays of the One Light, Weekly Commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. The topic of this week is activity versus inner communion. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Last week, we contemplated the well-known story of Martha and Mary. Traditionally, this story has been offered to show the two classic approaches to salvation. The first, through action, and the second, through prayer. The excuse of the Marthas of this world has always been the church needs its Marthas too. Treatises, moreover, have been written to justify the Martha approach to piety, praising her self-sacrifice as perhaps an ever higher demonstration of devotion. Thus, do the unmeditative in religion try to justify themselves. Yet the fact remains that Jesus rebuked Martha. Elsewhere, elsewhere, moreover, he spoke of the virtue of feeding the hungry, curing the sick, and housing those who were homeless. It wasn't that he disapproved of serving people. Wrong attitude was the object of his criticism. What he was criticizing was forgetfulness of the true goal of right spiritual action. Good deeds outwardly without inner communion with God will result in good karma but will not bring final freedom from all karma. The path to inner freedom was described by Paramahansa Yogananda in these words, Be always calmly active and actively calm. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the second chapter, who is, who is not shaken by anxiety during times of sorrow, nor related during times of happiness, who is free from egoic desires and their attendant fear and anger, such a one is of steady discrimination. Do your duty in life, so counsels this great scripture elsewhere, but never lose sight of him. 
to whom all action should be dedicated. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Before we uh, dive into the topic this morning, I just wanted to share something on that affirmation topic of of income. The story came to mind of uh, uh, a couple, um, a husband and wife, who had been for many years going to the state fair. And every year there was a ride there uh, where you could go into an open cockpit biplane. And it was a stunt plane, and it would take you and do all the things that stunt planes do. And every year the man wanted to uh, go on this ride, but every year the, his wife would say, well, it, it costs $10, dear, and $10 is $10. So he didn't go. And finally, one year the man, the man said, my dear, I'm 75 years old. I might not make it to next year's state fair. How about it? And she said, well, dear, I know you want to go, but $10 is $10. Well, the pilot overheard this conversation between the two, and he came over and very sweetly said, oh, you've really touched me, and I'd like to take you up in the plane at no charge at all. And, uh, of course, they were elated about that, and he said, but there's just one condition, and that's that neither one of you can say a word the whole time. Because if you do say a word, then the cost is $10. So he, he took them up, and he did all the things that stunt planes do. There were loops and barrel rolls and all the good stuff, and there was not a word spoken in the, in the, on the airplane. He finally brought him down, and uh, he, he returned and said to the husband, I'm so impressed. Not, not one of you said a word. And the husband said, well, I almost said something when my wife fell out, but $10 is $10. <laughs> gears now. (laughs) But it's good to have a little joy. Uh, I'd like to read this very short um, selection from Whispers from Eternity, a a book of prayer demands and poems by Paramahansa Yogananda. And because it's so short, I'd like to go through it with you several times because I'd like to think of, you know, think of yourself as maybe sitting on the edge of your bed when you get up in the morning and doing this first thing, or at the end of your morning meditation, doing this, this reading, because it really sets the tone for the day and for the topic of this week. Bless me that I may perceive thee through the windows of all joyous activities. Look upon me and cheer me always as I engage in my daily duties. Let every action, whether waking, sleeping, or dreaming, be sprayed by the fountain of thy presence. Bless me that I may perceive thee through the windows of all joyous activities. Look upon me and cheer me always as I engage in my daily duties. 
Let every action, whether waking, sleeping, or dreaming, be sprayed by the fountain of thy presence. Bless me that I may perceive thee through the windows of all joyous activities. Look upon me and cheer me always as I engage in my daily duties. Let my every action, whether waking, sleeping, or dreaming, be sprayed by the fountain of thy presence. Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. As most of you know, every year we, in the Sunday services, we go through the, the book that Diksha was reading from, Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. We go through the readings in the same order each year, and which means that every year about this time, for two weeks, Martha takes a beating. <laughs> And I used to wonder about that. I mean, how bad was her mistake, really? Uh, I mean, there's like, I, I could think of another disciple who made a bigger mistake. You know, <laughs> Judas by name. And Judas only gets one week. <laughs> Satan only gets one week. <laughs> Poor Martha gets two. She, there's this kind of this universal... Uh, a condemnation of, of Martha. I was talking with a, a friend after last week's Sunday service, and she'd grown up in the Catholic Church. And um, when she had gotten to the age to be confirmed as a member of the church, age 10 or 11, somewhere around in there, um, the, you get to take a, a spiritual name that goes with your first and middle names. And she wanted to take the name Martha. And the nun said to her, I, I don't think that's a very good idea. And she said, no, I want to, I want to take it. And I said, are you sure? She, and she was sure, and she took it, but the nuns didn't like it. And it's, uh, <laughs> you know, Martha, of course, is portrayed as, with, this, with this restlessness, and that was, the, that was the underlying problem. She was restless and not, and not God-conscious. She was busy. Now, how many of us, anybody here not busy? <laughs> I don't think that if you, even if you weren't busy, that you would raise your hand because there's kind of a, a national consciousness uh, that you ought to be busy. That if you're not busy, you're not productive. And if you're not productive, then what good are you? So everybody likes to be busy. Everybody likes to be plugged in. I was talking with not stable here. I was talking with someone uh, recently who was in, uh, in India, and he was trying to interest a, a Swami in some um, technology that he was peddling. The Swami was part of an organization. He wanted the organization to adopt this technology, and the Swami said, technology, no good. And he said, what? He said, look, letter, Wife pregnant. Fine. Nine months later, man get letter. Wife give birth. Fine. No problem with no technology. But no, now cell phone. Man get text. Wife in labor. Tension. <laughs> but you know this this whole business is not 
so much a matter of, excuse me, of what we're doing is, is how we're doing it. There's being busy and then there's being busy, having busy consciousness, which is that our consciousness is full of things we're doing. And yes, to some degree, it has to be, I have to have some of the things we're doing, but it's not full of God when we're in busy consciousness. And you know, this was what, what Martha was doing. She was, I just, see the scene for a minute. I, I had fun kind of making this scene in my mind. Here's the Jesus and his entourage uh, arrive at Martha's house. And of course, Martha, it being her house, she's going to be responsible for supplying the food. So she, she gets out in the kitchen, and probably on short notice, by the way. And uh, she's in the kitchen, and she's doing all the, all the preparations. And the thought comes to her, see, this is a lot of work. So far, it's just a thought. Okay? No problems here, it's just a thought. And so she does a little bit of more preparation, and the thought comes, sure would be nice if somebody came out to help. So the thought has morphed into a small desire. Small desire. And then she goes a little farther and she's starting to think, you know something? Somebody should come out here and help. Don't know what they're doing in there. Now that thought has morphed into a small desire, has morphed into a larger desire. Martha takes her strategy. She starts banging on things, making as much, <laughs> as much noise as decorum will, will allow, just hoping that somebody in the other room is going to get the message and come help her. And, of course, nothing happens. And finally, she, gets, she says, and there's not just somebody who should come here and help me. It's my sister Mary. She's probably just sitting in there listening to Jesus. So she takes the hors d'oeuvres in. <laughs> and she serves the hors d'oeuvres. And uh, after she's finished serving, she kind of tries to catch Mary's attention and just without saying anything. Just... Yeah. Into the kitchen. And, of course, Mary doesn't get it. Probably doesn't even look at her because she's looking at Jesus. And finally, Martha plays what she figures as her trump card, which is she's going to get Jesus to tell Mary that she should go out in the kitchen and, and help. And not really realizing that what she's really doing is uh, giving a little guidance to her guru, just in case the guru doesn't know what's supposed to be happening in this, in this situation. And you can imagine this line coming out, out of her mouth, you know, Jesus, you need to tell your disciple, Mary, to come out and, and help me. You can imagine sharp intake of breath all around, all around the room. You think, wow, this is, a, this is a big step. That She just fell off a cliff making that. But in fact, it wasn't a big step. It was just another step. Another step in the progression of the thought. First that thought, and then it morphed into a little desire, and then it became a, a bigger desire, and then that desire wasn't getting satisfied, so it became upset, and finally anger. And then that final step was just the natural consequence of all that had gone before, just telling Jesus what his business is. And, you know, the thing is, this is what happens to us as, as human beings 
if there's always something going through our minds, always. Now, maybe, okay, there's something going through my mind, always. <laughs> and, and probably many people's mind, always. And it can be a thought of God, or the thought of God flowing through you, or some uplifting quality of consciousness. Or, most of the time, the alternative is some kind of a desire. I mean, if we've seen, we've seen on television at least, if, I hope you haven't seen it too much in a hospital, but the little heart monitors where every time there's a beat goes beep, and there's another beat, beep. Well, what if you had, what if you had a desire monitor <laughs> attached to you, and every time you had a desire, that there's a beep? I'm, I'm willing to bet that in this room right now, there would be a steady beep. <laughs> Right? Because there's some people who are saying, you know, I've been sitting for quite a while. Sure, it would feel good to stand up. Or the people who are by the windows are thinking, ah, fresh air is great, but it's kind of cool. And the people in the middle of the room are saying, it's nice and warm here, but sure wish I had some fresh air. And, you know, these this, this desires are, are constantly coming through us and without our even trying. And that's what the, the Gita reading today is about. I just want to mention it again because it's uh, it kind of slips in there at the end of the of the reading. It takes you unawares a little bit. So I wanted to go through it again. He was not shaken by anxiety during times of sorrow, nor elated during times of happiness. Who was free from egoic desires and their attendant fear and anger. Such a one is of steady discrimination. Now, the fact is, the implications of that, that's not going to appeal to very many people. Uh, Okay, most people would like to be free of fear and anger and anxiety and sorrow. Not many people really want to be separated from their egoic desires because for a lot of people, egoic desires are what keep them going in life. And nobody wants to be free of elation and happiness. But... And what the, what the Gita is, is saying is that all, all of those conditions are really emotions that are the outcome of desires. Inevitably, you get what you want? Emotion. You don't get to what you want? Emotion. And the, and the yogi would say, you know, all those emotions just stir the pot. They just agitate me and I'm less able to tune into what I really want to tune into, which is, which is God's presence. And yet, here we are, human beings, we're desire machines. Really, we're, the desires just coming all the time. And what are we going to do about that? There's, a, there's actually, the fact that we're desire machines really is a good thing. It's a good thing because what is a desire? A desire is just for a wish for a circumstance other than what's presently happening, right? If you're totally content in the present moment, that's when you have no desire. And most of us aren't totally content in the present moment quite a lot of the time, and so the desires come in to, to change it. And all that is, really, is a... a a bubbling up to the surface of, a, of kind of an irresistible inner urge 
for happiness. That's all it is, just bubbling up to the surface and kind of comparing that inner urge for happiness with current conditions and saying, not a match. <laughs> yeah, I'd, re- I'd really like to see something different happen here. And this is something that happens in, in every, every human being who has not attained uh, superconsciousness because there isn't a match. There isn't a match between that, that irresistible inner urge for happiness and current conditions until we're in God consciousness. And later in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says to Arjuna, I don't care what you say, Arjuna. You think you're not going to undertake this search for divine joy. But you are. No matter what you say, because your own nature will compel you to. Your own nature being divine joy itself, but it will will bubble up to the surface and it will continually prod us. Do something to change your circumstance because you want to realize your own true nature of joy. And so we, we take that signal that something needs to change here. We want to, we want to bring about that match between our current circumstances and that, that joy that we think not only could but should be ours. And we try and rearrange the outer world to create that match. And funny thing, it just isn't possible. Because even when we get all of our ducks in a row, they don't stay in a row. Anybody ever had that? Anybody ever, first of all, anybody ever gotten all their ducks in a row? <laughs> Probably not, but if, if you did manage it for that brief millisecond of, of rowness of all the ducks, the next thing you know, they go out of it, and we're trying to manipulate it again, get everything into alignment. It just, it just doesn't work. So... This, but this desire mechanism is what's, what's going to save us. Because as Krishna says, because we have that inner urge toward joy, because it's what we're made of, that, and that inner urge is really just us wanting to be us. That's all. It's the, it's the soul wanting to come into, into greater prominence. Soul consciousness come into through our moment-to-moment experience of life. That is what is going to drive us. Finally, you can think of it as a carrot or you can think of it as a stick, but, but either way, we're going to move toward that, that state of joy that is our legacy, is our birthright. So desire is really, really, really a good thing. It just needs to be trained up a little bit because there are a couple problems with it. First of all, uh, it might not be strong enough to take us where we want to go. I remember many years ago, uh, practically every time I saw her, my mother would say something along the lines of, I don't know what it is. I try these diets, and I'm never able to lose weight. And uh, she said, when am I going to lose weight? And she was asking me. (laughs) And, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I said to her every time, pretty much, I, I guess 
uh, you lose weight when you want it enough. And she hated that answer <laughs> because she knew it was the right answer. <laughs> when she wanted enough, she would, she would do something about it that would create that weight loss. And it's the same with us in any area of our lives. When we want it enough, we'll usually do what it takes to make it happen. But there's another element to training up our desire faculty a bit, and that's direction. We need to get our, our desires going in the, in the right direction because, as we know, our desires just spray out all over the place because we think maybe the happiness is there, maybe it's there, maybe it's there, maybe it's there. We try all these different directions and as we walk along the spiritual path, we get a lot clearer and a lot clearer, maybe not perfectly clear, but clearer as to what that direction is. And we, we get that motivation factor, that, that strength of desire, greater and greater. And we get into a better and better position to take ourselves forward in the spiritual life with all, all, all these detours that so many of us are accustomed to. And this is really just a building of our devotion. I mean, devotion is just another desire on one level, but the way Paramahansa Yogananda put it, he said, it's the desire that satisfies all desires. It's the, it's, yes, it's a desire. As long as we have that devotion, any desire is kind of a, an affirmation of incompleteness, right? If you were complete, you wouldn't have the desire. Even devotion, in a way, is an affirmation of incompleteness. But it is that affirmation of incompleteness that takes us in the direction of completeness. Takes us in the direction of fulfilling that that irresistible inner urge that every, every one of us feels, that every one of us calls happiness or joy or or bliss, that's really devotion. Devotion is just moving toward that, however we conceive it. You know, so many people these days, um, and I encountered this just recently, in fact, on a, on a, a trip that Diksha and I took to uh, Wisconsin, and, and we were, we were uh, giving a weekend retreat for the uh, yoga and meditation club of the uh, University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, and uh, and the, even we didn't we mostly stayed away from the word God, but I think it crept in once or maybe twice, and uh, it uh, because we had been um, notified in in advance that not that it was a bad thing to do, it's just just be, be careful of, of reaction. Yeah, and there was was a little bit of reaction from a few, a few people, and it's so interesting because. People hold on so tenaciously to images of God that they've already rejected. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's the, it's the, they really stuck on an image that they didn't like in the first place and, and have a difficult time letting go of that. And of course, it's going to be very, very hard to have a, any kind of a feeling of devotion for something that you've adamantly rejected. But really, it doesn't matter what our idea of God is. 
Not in the least, because whatever it is, it's wrong. Uh, because I, God is so much bigger than anything that can fit in the head. It's, it's ridiculous to think that our idea of God could ever be right. But our direction of godliness can be right. We can go and toward whatever it is that however it is we conceive of, as Swami Kriyananda put it in the art and science of Raja Yoga, he said, no one can advance spiritually who does not have in his mind the idea that there must be something higher than his current state of awareness. And that's God. Everybody has a different idea of what that is. And it doesn't matter that everybody has a different idea of what that is. What matters is that everybody has a direction. And that everybody has a motivation to move in that direction. And that's really all that's going on in the whole spiritual life. It's just, it's just seeing our notions of God, of joy, of, of completeness, seeing our notions mature. And, and yeah, they change directions and we get it a little different sort of year by year as we go. But that's really all that the spiritual path is, is moving in the best direction that we can see at any given moment, in the direction of happiness in every great given moment. And as we, as we get more and more experience on the path, we get a lot clearer on what that direction is. And the time comes when we, when we really have a good idea of what that direction is. And we have that, that inner understanding that part of this whole process is keeping our objective, keeping God, keeping joy, whatever, however we want to portray it, keeping it in the forefront of our awareness as much as possible. And that's not hard to do when we're chanting. And it's not really that hard to do when we're meditating. But when we're busy, that's harder to do. And this is what this, the, the reading, the why, I guess Swami Kriyananda was giving two weeks to Martha and only one week to Judas, one week to Satan, is that Martha's position was a lot more relevant to us. That Judas's mistake was not very relevant to us. And the colossal mistakes that Satan has made are not very relevant to us in the sense of blameworthiness, something we might do. But Martha... Martha, it was very relevant to us because we are engaged in the battle of daily life on a, on a regular basis and we fall into Martha consciousness uh, all too often. And really, it's not that difficult. You know, when in, the, in the yoga teacher training program, when people come, uh, part of the program is uh, little brief sessions of karma yoga in which we... Uh, have assigned them to do very you know re- simple repetitive tasks like clearing tables, washing dishes, sort of thing, so they can get a, a sense of having divine consciousness as they act because that 's easier to do when you 're in a simple meditative activity and just to get a sense this is what karma yoga is this is what Martha was not doing, which was just trying to cultivate a consciousness of the divine flowing through you as you act. And it just gets easier 
and easier, the simpler the task is. So we start with a simple task so that we can build up into the more demanding tasks, uh, where it's more demanding to really keep the presence of God in mind, to keep that divine flow in the forefront of your consciousness until we can do that in, in any situation. Now there's a, a, very, a very fascinating book called uh, Way of a Pilgrim. I'm sure a number of you have read it and those of you who have not read it, I recommend it because it's a beautiful book, a story of a, of a Russian peasant who, who took on the Bible verse of pray without ceasing. What does that mean? trying to find a meaning to it, and he was finally given uh, by a staritz, uh, um, a guru, essentially, in the Russian Orthodox tradition, uh, given the repetition of the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. And this, this simple man who couldn't even read uh, just repeated this mantra, really, which is what a Jesus prayer is, over and over again, when it, until it became just so much a part of him that he, he, he went to sleep with it. It was going all night while he was asleep. He woke up in the morning with it. He didn't have to repeat it anymore because it was repeating itself over and over again. And he was just in such bliss. He didn't want to do anything that, that interrupted his, his awareness of this divine presence inside of him. And so... so at the end of this book, there's a portion called The Pilgrim Continues His Way when he's being interviewed by some, some higher-ups in the church trying to kind of get down his story so that this book could happen eventually. And one of them, one of them asks, but what about, what about very mental tasks? I mean, how can you possibly keep God in mind when you're doing something that's very, very demanding of the mind? And the answer was very interesting. The answer was, imagine that you're, that, uh, you're in front of a great king. And the king commands you to write a very scholarly treatise. And you're to do it sitting right in front of the king. Would you not constantly be aware of the king's presence, even while you were doing that very mentally demanding task? And, and the, that was a very good answer because we are in the constant presence of the king. And there's no getting away from it and there's no wanting to get away from it because it is the presence that is going to take us out of the whole show to where we're in that place of bliss, in that place of, of divine joy uninterruptedly. And I wanted to close by just reading a very brief selection from Paramahansa Yogananda's a talk of Paramahansa Yogananda where he said be afraid of nothing hating none giving love to all feeling the love of God seeing his presence in everyone and having but one desire for his constant presence in the temple of your consciousness that is the way to live in this world